The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome everybody. Happy Tuesday. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money, flanked by family members today. Dr. Fred Gertz is on the phone, I believe. Dr. Fred, are you on there? I'm here. Good. Uh, okay. Good to talk to you. Let me get to my intro here that seemingly disappeared. I'm with uh, certified financial planner professionals, well, both David Rudy and Paul Rudy, and David is also a retirement income certified professional. And with Ryan uh, Repco, who's joining us. We kind of pulled him in today, didn't we? You did. And he was he's just here us. to set up the camera. Now he's on the spot, not knowing the notes either. I, I got you on that, and I was looking for my intro notes, Polly, but they seemed to leave me. Anyway, uh, you listen to Paul Rudy's On The Money on WDWS, and happy to be with everybody. Remember to do your own research and due diligence. Past performance is no indication of real-world results, I should say, or future results. You can call in at 356-9397, or you can text in on the text line, which is 3515-357, I believe. I think I got that right. I'm doing it all from memory. See? Old dad still has it. I was going to say, you know the you know the intro down cold. You don't even need the notes. <laughs> so anyway, we uh, we have Dr. Fred up front. I'm going to go to my uh, first line of questioning. Uh, certainly, Fred, uh, it's, well, there's, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on out there. Um, but there seems to be stronger and stronger. Uh, seems like just at a time when things are getting really good. And I read something today that uh, showed that corporate tax uh, – receipts or uh, tax earnings or I think I'm looking at it right here I know it's well anyway oh tax receipts are up 17 percent from a year ago one reached a record 1.92 trillion um, it sure seems like just when things are clicking pretty good for the economy now all of a sudden are the tariffs getting a little more concerning to you Fred well, they're always concerning, but it's uh, more of a long-term problem, I think, than a short-term problem, because right now it, it's hard to tell whether the tariffs are there to stay or simply a strategic measure trying to get some kind of uh, concession for other countries, especially uh, China. But again, it's uh, worrisome in the long run, but uh, right, right now it seems uh, a kind of uh, situation where we're moving ahead uh, despite all the obstacles. Again, we've had kind of a mini uh stock market cycle in the last uh, couple of weeks was down uh, considerably uh, a couple of weeks ago and then the last three or four days it's been up very strongly so the economy seems to have a kind of life of its own and uh, you know things are, are pretty good now the jobs report was strong the federal reserve seems to be uh, prepared to go ahead with their modest rate increases uh, we've gone into a situation where we're worried about uh, wage growth and now, uh, in terms of it wasn't growing fast enough, and now some firms are worried about uh, wage growth making it more difficult for them to operate. There seems to be more uh, more job slots available than almost ever, and uh, unemployment's at, all, at a near historic low, even though it increased very slightly last month. So, again, it's uh, you can think of it as kind of a sweet spot. It maybe not as sweet as uh, three or four percent growth, but it's certainly a, a good situation. Yeah. You're breaking up a little bit, but if as long as it doesn't get worse, okay. I'll let you know if you need to call back. Okay. 
And uh, it's 112 months now into this economic recovery. It's one of the long, I think it's the second longest, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and uh, right. so I think from that standpoint, but so a lot of people think just because the, the economy has grown for 112 months and it's the second longest that it's, it's almost imminent that we end up with a recession. I get this, I always have this feeling that the economy doesn't care who's the president and how doesn't mind a calendar either. Would that be safe to say? Right. Yeah, because uh, I think that's true. Uh, there's a saying that's uh, often uh, appropriate at this time of the uh, cycle, and that is that uh, expansions don't die of old age. They, they die of some kind of, uh, of situation that uh, brings them to an end. So just because they're old doesn't mean that they're going to end. But again, uh, they don't last forever either. So well, we've had a recession. We've had, uh, I, I, I think, since 1850, we've had a recession at least one in per decade. Uh, and of course, right. You know, and often had, in the old uh, old days, that old days like being before the uh, 1980s, uh, recessions occurred about every uh, five to seven years. More recently, it's been uh, around a ten year periods. So the, the recessions have uh, grown uh, further apart, uh, farther apart, and in addition to that, uh, except for the, the big asterisk of, uh, of 2007 to 2009, uh, most recessions have been fairly mild. Uh, that was one very big exception, though. And one of the things that's been frustrating me, oh, for a couple of years now, is everybody says, well, this is the ninth year of this bull market, as if we haven't had a bear market, which a bear market is defined as a 20% decline in the broad markets, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's U.S. and international. And I... I, I I, I've shared this in newsletter to clients uh, quite a while back that I don't see it that way. I look at 2016 and what went on the first six weeks, the worst six weeks in U.S. history for the stock market. But if you look at the international markets, we're down well more than 20 percent. Small caps, mid caps down more than 20 percent. So I kind of feel like this bull market, the stock market is only a couple of years old. And it's certainly right. a also contrary a, position. Uh, a pretty severe decline in the uh Last part of 2011, people were yes. worried about the uh, lack of a budget deal, things of that sort. I think the difference, though, which, again, is uh, something I can relatively do, even when we do have these downturns, they tend to be very short. Uh, you know, and, and many times uh, the market goes down, it stays down for uh, months, even years. Uh, more recently, it's gone down fairly rapidly, but then come back almost as, as rapidly. So we haven't had these long kind of uh, discouraging periods when the market just goes down and stays down. Is that because the Federal Reserve is getting better at what it does, or is it just no cor no correlate or causation at all? Well, uh, again, uh, uh, over 10 years ago, I would have said that, but uh, we used to talk about the great moderation uh, when, uh, since the 1980s, uh, the recessions have grown farther, uh, uh, further apart, and they've been milder, and uh, we hadn't had inflationary problems, things of that sort, but then we had the, the aberration of the uh, 2007 to 2009 period. So, again, I think that's true, but there's always uh, the potential for some unexpected thing to happen, like the uh, like the downturn of the Great Recession. Again, I don't think we have to worry about a financial crisis right now. That's, that's not a problem. And I don't think we also are in a situation where we have a broad uh, so-called market bubble. There may be certain areas that are a little bit frothy, but so again, I think it's, it's fairly strong. The other thing, which we always talk about, is uh, maybe all these, uh, all the good news has been incorporated into asset prices, and 
even if the good news continues, it may not uh, mean that uh, stocks are going to shoot up uh, uh, over the next several months. No, it sure looks like earnings are forecasted to be stronger. And I, of course, you know, I'm, I'm the incurable optimist. I always, you know, take this, I always take the feeling because I hear so often the stock market's overvalued. And I take issue with that. I mean, you want to talk about something that's uh, overvalued, it's the 10-year Treasury note at a 2.8% yield. You know, that's a price-to-earnings ratio of 32 almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, so I, I kind of take a little bit of issue with some of that, what's going on. And, uh, I always feel, I always take this position guys that we don't, and we can't know how things are going to turn out in the future, but it's just that right. I remember in the eighties, uh, you know, nobody really was sitting around forecasting the internet issue, you know, and all the technology boom, because you couldn't have foreseen it. And I sometimes take the view and I'm that op- incurable optimist that, well, maybe the market's telling us something. Maybe maybe there's things we right. just don't know what's going to develop. And maybe that's what technology is telling us again right now because yeah. of the technology sector. Well, it's kind of a, almost a leap of faith because uh, most of us believe that there are going to be good things happening in the future, but almost no, no one knows what the good things are. If we knew what the good things uh, were in the future, the, the new Internet or the new uh, iPhone or whatever it might be, we'd invest in it and make tons of money. But uh, we don't know that. We have to have some sort of... Uh, uh, faith in the, the economy that innovation is going to continue. But the, the idea, though, uh, I guess uh, probably your uh, your sons will agree with me more maybe than you do, but the idea of overvalued or undervalued really is a very useful concept uh, unless you're a market timer because you're basically saying that the market is what it is most of the time, and the idea of passive investment is to sort of go with it and not try to come down on the side of overvalued or undervalued. I think that's spot on. And I guess I was, I come from, I read so many negative articles that I think people do, uh, you know, they read about how over, and they've read this year after year, really since 2010 or 11, probably. And I think it does keep people on the sidelines and you're right. We're agnostic. Uh, I may opine about the market, you know, as I did in 2010 and 11 and 12, basically letter newsletters to clients saying, well, you know, we're not changing a thing, but just so you know, I don't agree with this overvalued stuff. In fact, I think the market is so undervalued by a bizarre amount. And it turns out that right. that turned out to be the case. Um, but again, that's not, I wouldn't have told anybody to act on that. You know, uh, right. I think sometimes I clients- that, they'd act if they, if they were sitting on the sidelines and, and should have been invested. That might be a, uh, the last uh, kind of nudge to get them to move in. Yeah, I agree. You shouldn't be in or out based on valuations. You should be in the ownership of the great companies of America for one reason, one reason only. You have enough time horizon in your your world, and that those returns, the potential returns, not the guaranteed return, returns, the potential returns are so much better than the potential bond returns over the next 5, 10, or 30 years. That That's because... It creates an alignment between what's the purpose of the money. Well, I want to retire in 10 years, and I'm going to be retired for 30 probably. So, therefore, I need to have a significant or a reasonable portion of my money in the great companies of America in the world. Um, Certainly, we don't have an inverted yield curve yet. Um, The two-year treasury, I think, is at around 2.56% last I looked, and the 10-year treasury is at a... 2.8 
2.86%. So even if it was inverted, their time lag between inversion of that yield curve, in other words, it's saying, look, when short-term rates get higher than long-term rates, there's this kind of expectation that there's going to be this slowdown and earnings are going to go down. And it's right. just kind of one of those classic signs. But when you pierce that data, you say, but it's well, also maybe, uh, in a sense, it's kind of returned to a normal situation because uh, long-term rates have been in the, the current range for a while, but now uh, with the tightening of monetary policy, some of the short rate, term rates are going up. So again, uh, there's no, even though they talk about the inverted uh, yield curve, it's not like a magic formula to predict uh, a recession. No, I, I, I'm just basically saying, Fred, that even if people were right and we get to this inverted yield curve yeah. and we may have a recession because of it, and that may or may not be true, but just from an historical standpoint, it would still be probably, based on historical time measures, it still would probably be a year or more out. And uh, so it doesn't right. look like we're going to get a recession in 2018 unless, like you said, it could, there can always be a surprising event, which is unknowable. So, you know. Right. Well, I, yeah, I, I think we may have talked about it last time, but even someone who's very circumspect, uh, uh, former chairman uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, said he didn't expect uh, he didn't expect a recession. But in any event, if one were to occur, it was going to be eighteen months or so into the future. So right. again, that's there's no guarantee even from a former Fed chairman, but that's sort of an uh, uh, yeah. indication that no one sees anything on the horizon as. Uh, what's happening now and again that's showing up everywhere retail sales are strong housing is basically in another boom again you know all these things unemployment uh three point you know the fed's projecting it to go to 3.6 percent inflation uh pretty tame at around two on the core inflation uh fred one of the questions i get a lot is you know when we when the fed talks about core inflation and this comes up you you know uh, from being on the show all these years fred of well, excluding food and energy, you know, the inflation right. was this number. And I think that really bothers people because most of us cannot exclude food or energy out of our life. But that's just because they're so volatile and there's so much noise in those two numbers that it kind of right. messes the, with yeah, the trend. They're not saying that uh, when they say uh, we ignore uh, energy and food, they're not saying that's not important for people. They're, they're saying for their own policy purposes, uh, they won't, don't want to uh, take uh, – uh, you know, a quick action based upon some big increase or fall in oil prices, things of that sort. So it's not that it doesn't impact consumers. It's their own way of trying to uh, kind of modulate their own, own policy issues and not overreact to these kind of changes. Do you think that maybe we've been lulled into this sense of almost pessimism from an economic standpoint? Uh, we're, you know, we've come off of year after year after year of somewhere around 2% real GDP, uh, that maybe there's going to be maybe maybe three and a half four percent GDP real GDP in the future uh, may take people by surprise, but maybe that's what we're building in this pipeline. I'm just wondering about that with all well, the tax cuts and well, deregulation. Uh, yeah, it, it would take me by surprise. I, I think that uh, uh, you know if, if someone could uh, offer me a deal, I'd be delighted with. Uh, two and a half percent long-term growth rate is not what we had in the past but it's better than we've had in the recent past and there are a lot of obstacles that uh facing an aging population and things of that sort so again it's possible i think this uh right now we may be above three percent but i think it's unlikely we're going to be that that way in the uh 
in the long term. Oh, no, again, I'm, I'm just thinking over this habit. I'm, of course, thinking yeah. <laughs> of the next year or two yeah. or three. What is it really? Sure. Well, what would really surprise people? And I think if you started seeing 4% GDP numbers and we've lived through oh, that it before, be it'd be more typical after a really serious recession. But we're so far from that serious recession now that it kind of. Anyway, these yeah, are well, the, it I mean, you could argue maybe it's making up for lost time because generally uh, a severe recession has a fairly uh, sharp uh, bounce back as well. And that didn't happen. So maybe what we've done is to incorporate the recovery over a, a longer period of time as opposed to having it uh, fairly sharp after the after the downturn. But again, uh, there's a, a lot of, of uh, discussion in the economics area about uh, long term growth and uh, if, if there's a consensus, it's probably that we're not going to uh, go back to the post-World War II uh, 3% uh, plus for a long period of time. But that's not to say it's going to be uh, really bad either. So, again, uh, my uh, uh, my deal would be uh, sign off at 2.5% and be happy, but uh, that deal's not really uh, available. And if you look at the corporate earnings, guys, since the Great Recession, they've, we've been going to all-time highs since early in the early in the early period post-recession. And I've always, you know, thought to myself, "Wow, if these companies can make this kind of money in a really slow growth economic environment, what might they what might they be able to earn in a three to four percent real GDP over the next two or three years if that comes to face? I mean, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's what's bubbling up here and keeping so many people on the sidelines thinking this thing surely has to go down but you know uh, uh, earnings from a corporate america are like i said they're at 17 percent higher than they were corporate tax receipts right. and, uh than they were a year ago and those are big numbers 17 percent's huge increase yeah. yeah recessions have a way of uh, getting people's attention so uh one of the uh sort of a positive in, in a strange way but one of the positive impacts of a recession is that it causes firms to take a very hard look at their operating procedure and incorporate some efficiencies that may not have been uh high on the list beforehand so recessions uh do have a, a kind of uh a function in terms of uh, weeding out things and calling some of the, the bad operations that that may be why we had a pretty big increase uh, in profits shortly after the recession yeah well, it's been uh, nothing short of amazing. I think it's, you know, again, when you see how investors behave over the last 10 years, they've missed a huge part. And when I say that, I'm, you, you look at cash flows in and out of stock mutual funds and in and out of bond mutual funds. And, and you know, they're, they're not behaving as if this, that they're behaving as if this bull market's got a long way to run in a contrary sense. In right. other words, when you see people just at the most brief downturn, you know, a few weeks back, and then a little bit earlier in the year, the, f the least little amount of pullback, you see almost record sums of money running out of stock mutual funds into bond funds. Uh, and bond funds yeah, primarily that are hurting. That, uh, yeah, it's another sign that uh, it's not like uh, you get a tip on the street and everyone's rushing to put money into yeah. the equity market to actually uh, money's coming out. So. Yeah, I, I, Again, that's, I, that's probably a sign that we're not, not close to the top. Well, you've been around a long time, and you've seen this and monitored this, the economics and stock markets, uh, longer than I have, but I've been doing it for 35 years, and I guess I was just making the observation of, well, I can remember how people were behaving, you know, when the market would never go down only to see it go down pretty severely. It's just a different behavior right. issue, and just an observation on my, my part that that's not how big bull markets die is when everybody runs for right. the hills the first time somebody coughs 
uh, so right. anyway, um, I'm going to move to uh, a blog that you wrote recently. Okay, great. You want to stay on, Fred? I'll listen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're certainly welcome to add in. In fact, we're going to talk about an article that Paul wrote, I think, after this one, about smart beta. And the guys were thinking, oh, I'll be interested to hear uh, Dr. Fred's right. spin on that. Because especially from your background on pension funds and currently on the SERS board, uh, it, what kind of discussions may or may not be coming around that. But that's going to be the next right. section here in, in just a little bit. But, Paul, you wrote a blog, The Retirement Mo Mountain, where you kind of like uh, liken uh, investing and saving for retirement is like climbing to the top of a mountain. And I know you like to do <laughs> I wouldn't call you a mountain climber. I, would, I wouldn't call I'd myself call a, a mountain mar climber. A, a mountain walker. Yep, uh, that's maybe, more accurate. But I know you do some pretty rigorous ones that, you know, you get up there and you wonder how you got there. Um, usually I like to ask, where did you come up with the idea for that? Was that literally like where you, you know, on these one of these long treks where you think, Yeah, like, it was wow, written amongst. You really got to be patient. And yeah, it was written amongst several hikes. And I like to get out to Colorado and Las Vegas and California to get out to mountains, get a little elevation. Uh, for me, growing up in the Midwest, you know, flat ground at so sea level, pretty Orchard much. Orchard Downs isn't enough of a mountain for you? know, you? It's, it was a mountain to me. It still feels like it, it was in when some I was ways. a kid yeah. in the wintertime. And I got the same program in Texas, so I moved to an equally flat place. So hiking up, hey, Fred, I think we got a little bit of noise on your end. Um, so hiking up a mountain, there's nothing in my athletic vocabulary that has prepared me for that. So it's really, it's a pretty difficult challenge, but I really like being outdoors and I, I take my time and I go slow. So, you know, a lot of times on the way down, getting up to the top of a mountain is very fun, but on the way down, you're, you're not really working towards that reward. So I, you kind of have a lot of time to just kind of think to yourself. And, you know, over time, I would say maybe I would get one idea on each hike and say, hey, that's, that's really a way that hiking like this is similar to planning for retirement. Dave, you kind of, just as a quick aside, you're really big into nutrition and study that a lot. And you know, you've drawn a lot of parallels between nutrition. So sometimes it's just things that we like and enjoy uh, bring us to some of these parallels when it comes to our own careers and investing. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you... If you do your homework and you sort of work up to bigger goals, I guess, and this is the same with retirement planning, you'd so be really... So is, is, is there like goal setting process involved in that? Is that what, like, you don't just go walk up a mountain, you, you know? There is. And um, I recently achieved one of my biggest hiking goals kind of unintentionally. And uh, we'll get to that a little later, but it was a hike up to Charleston Peak, which is the, the highest mountain peak outside of Las Vegas. It's about an hour northwest of Las Vegas. And it's kind of, I've hiked the area before, my buddy and I like to go out there, and it's kind of been on my radar for a while. It's like this this big looming mountain that's off in the distance. It's kind of this mysterious, intimidating thing. Well, isn't that kind of like retirement? I'd say that's where the, there's this, this- There's this mysterious thing out there. and Yeah, I'd say that's where the similarities start. You know, people who are planning for retirement are a lot like people who are sitting at the foot of the mountain looking at the top. They have this huge, intimidating thing ahead of them. They know it's gonna be a lot of work. It's gonna take a while and they're probably going to have to come up with some sort of plan for getting there. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of parallels with just the intimidation factor that you feel at the foot of the mountain, just like you feel when you're maybe my age or day's age starting to save for retirement. Well, and I think that intimidation factor can prevent people from actually getting started. It's kind of like you put it in this black box and want to go into denial of like, oh no, I don't really need to be addressing this right now. You just kind of like ignore it. And really, that I think a lot of that does stem from fear or just overwhelm. I think it's a feeling of overwhelm. Is that, that do like, you think some people, when they're earlier in their career in 401ks, they figure, well, if I can't save 15%, it's 
saving 3% of my salary is not worth it. In other words, if I can't attack the top of the mountain, you know, maybe you got to walk for a month and get build up some endurance. Or I, if you're in Colorado, maybe you got to spend a few days before getting just used to the low oxygen levels. Or quite frankly, years. I mean, I've been building up to this most recent hike for a couple years. And um, I guess that's one of the most important things to remember about both mountain hiking and retirement planning is you have to understand your personal situation and set reasonable goals. So for example, I have friends that live in Colorado. They live at elevation. They do 14,000 foot hikes or 14ers for, you know, that's a little bit of hiker bro jargon for you, 14ers. And um, they do that stuff all the time. And uh, I've been out, you know, with them. We went to Aspen one time and they were going to do one of these hikes. And I just knew better. You know, I, I shot for about the halfway point. There was a really cool lake. I was happy. I wasn't disappointed that I didn't make the hike with them because quite frankly, I would have got to the halfway point and I would have, I would have been shot. I mean, I, I would never, my legs would have been dead. I probably would have been hypoxic. And you, you really have to know your limits because you can go out there and have a great time basing your goals on just what works for you. But if you try to stretch for what other people have, you generally are going to get into frustration. You really shouldn't measure your retirement next to what other people have and what their goals are. Yeah, well, that's, that's really important because it's, it's, you think about a hike as being, well, it's not that complex, but really there's a lot that goes on to, to, to planning that, to get to preparing, to get your endurance. I, I can see a lot of parallels between that. And then there's probably complications that happen. You know, you think it's going to be a smooth hike, and next thing you know, you're halfway up there and you're starting to second guess yourself. Think about how much investors second guess themselves, you know, when it comes to retirement. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we always emphasize the importance of a financial plan for retirement. So, of course, I had to draw a parallel there. Um, I use an app, and it's also a website called All Trails. And I put a screenshot in the blog if people want to see it. But uh, it tells you basically what your route is going to be. You know, you see an aerial view of your actual your trail route because a lot of times there's really only one route to get there. And this is the same way with retirement planning, too. There's sometimes an easier route and a harder route. And this trail map is generally going to show you the easiest, most direct route. So you really want to plan in advance because if you just tried to walk up a mountain and tried to get there, there, there's no way you'd get there, right? Something would end up in your way. So it's good to have, you know, I use my All Trails app, but in retirement, you use your financial plan to say, hey, how much, you know, are my goals reasonable? Can I actually get there? You know, how much legwork am I going to have to put in? You know, and in hiking, it's how many miles am I going to have to cover? But in retirement, it's how much saving am I going to have to do? And once you kind of understand that, it makes the mountain a little less intimidating. You realize what you're getting into. And I would say even more important than that, you kind of hinted at it, is when you get off track, which you will often do. You know, these trails are not always most, the, the most clearly marked. And you'll look at your app and you'll say, gosh, I'm like 20 or 30 yards to the right of the trail. And you know which adjustment to make to get back onto the trail. And that is exactly like a financial plan in retirement. You know, it's not set it and forget it. Really, this is a guiding tool to, to help you make those adjustments because your plan will recognize that you're off track and here's what you got to do to get back. And you're on never going to be precision. You're never going to have precision. So it's the, kind of gets to that concept. I'd rather be approximately right than precisely wrong. Right. And even if you don't get exactly right back on the trail, you know, even when you're off the trail, kind of which direction you should be heading. So, yeah, there's been some times out there where my all trails app has really saved me from going drastically the wrong direction well isn't that what a plan does uh when we have a plan just at that time when the 
you get into a, a, a nasty stock market situation or even bond market situation or maybe it's a lot of things at once maybe or something a, in your personal a, life or something in your personal life that rocks your world you know, a boulder that runs down the hill that wasn't supposed to be there and isn't it we were talking about this on the way here about you know we the guys are prolific writers uh and again i mentioned last time on the last show that uh paul my son paul when the invest you know was chosen as one of investopedia's top 100 most influential advisors in the u.s thankfully so, they didn't rank them one to 100 because I, I have a feeling where i would have been on that you'd have made the other yeah. 99 possible <laughs> you've made the upper 99 possible i'm sure uh and so they write a lot and, the, and these guys talk a lot about writing and how you know how how to be effective at it i mean you know if you just throw details out there they're boring uh and and, and like well do you what if you tell them too much? Well, then do they need you? And I said, guys, I could tell somebody exactly how to do what we do. I could, t I could write a roadmap that was precisely right for the next 30 years. And at the end of that 30-year period, somewhere they would have gotten off the trail. They would have second-guessed themselves. They wouldn't trust their compass. They'd start going the wrong direction, and that's how people get in trouble. And so I, I think that's a good analogy. Um, Dave, where would you – what's a reasonable starting point then – as far as goal setting, you know, a baseline goal. I get this question all the time, and honestly, it's it's really hard to answer. Is that answer. mainly from your people of your age? Yeah, mostly because they're the ones wondering, okay, well, usually the question is how much do I need to save? And I'm like, well, that is, I can't answer that without a ton more information. Um, and a lot of that is, well, what are your goals? And then I can't really tell people what their goals are, but I think a reasonable kind of like, typical scenario would be retiring somewhere around age 65 and trying to replace your current net income. Now, yeah, obviously, some tax, people yeah. are going to say, there's no way I'm going to work until 65. I want to retire at 50 or 55. Well, th that's fine. It's just going to be a lot more difficult. And so that's where it gets back to, like Paul said, being deliberate, setting your goals, creating a plan, because a plan to retire at 55 is going to be drastically different than a plan to retire at 65 when you have Medicare and you don't have those additional health insurance premiums. And not only that, you have 10 years less where you're taking portfolio withdrawals. So at the end of the day, you have to choose goals that, that really jive with you, that you're motivated to achieve. But I do think there's, like Paul said, there's a certain amount of reality. If you start choosing goals that are way too lofty, it might lead you to do some dumb stuff, like maybe you're taking way too much risk with your investments in terms of concentrating in an individual stock, trying to shoot the lights out or, or do something silly so that you can retire at age 35 because you heard about, you know, you read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss and you got inspired and you felt like you didn't want to work anymore. And, well, you know. it, it, do you guys in your 20s and 30s, uh, Ryan's crossed the 30 threshold, Paul's knocking on the door. Uh, Dave's oh, thanks his, for uh, reminding Dave's me. Dave's in his upper 20s. I just wonder when you guys are with your buddies, um, is there even any discussion about, oh, I want to retire? I mean, is it even, no. does it even come up? No, and even people that I've just done kind of one-off financial planning for, just because I like to help out people my own age, you know, a lot of the times you do have to coach them on what their goals should be because everyone wants to retire and spend $100,000 a year starting at age 40. And that's just, unless you're making a million dollars right now, it's it's really not practical. So, I, so you sometimes have to not be the bearer of bad news, but be the bearer of realistic expectations that, like Dave said, you're probably going to start right now, at least, shooting for somewhere like 65. But 
you may end up exceeding those goals and we'll get to that later it's too. gonna it's gonna change a lot just like your personal taste of what types of mountains you like to climb like well those are too boring for me i got to do 14ers or whatever you crazy kids say <laughs> out in colorado you're picking it up yeah <laughs> you know, so so on top of setting expectations and having that map i mean that that's really if you don't do if you don't do those fundamental prerequisites up front is that well, good luck retiring or having any concept of being able to retire without some type of a, I could substitute the word map. I could substitute uh, plan for the word map, couldn't I? Yeah. Oh, you absolutely could. I mean, the same thing. If you get off course, this is where you would make the adjustment. This is how much of an adjustment to make. These are the things to watch out for. We have to plan that bad things can happen. How are we going to, what kind of a clothing are we going to bring along? And then of those, we get into bad market periods and, and just bad periods and you can't just say, well, it looks sunny and it's warm and forget that, well, there's a front that could come through at any oh, time. Oh, I made that mistake. Uh, the forecast was 50 degrees and kind of partly cloudy, and we got up there to the last four miles of our hike, and it was 70 and sunny. So I think, I don't know, hopefully you can't see it on the camera, but I'm still peeling a little bit on the backs of my arms. from. Uh, I got punished by Mount Charleston a little bit on that one. In other words, and that happens to people, right? They, they get complacent. Um, it's, it's when the markets when the when our investments are going up month after month in our 401k plan we can get kind of complacent and forget i always for some reason this popped into my brain my dad you know was a chicago guy south side of chicago mainly and anytime we would go up to a cubs game in the summertime he'd say well make sure you bring a sweatshirt or a jacket and we're like dad it's going to be you know it's 88 degrees here in champagne well you know it can't be that much you know it's got to be hot in chicago he says well if that lake shift that lake wind shifts you'll wish you had a jacket and of course i ignored him one time and it all of a sudden <laughs> it went from about 82 degrees to about 42 degrees and windy and kind of cold and rainy and it was like well we were gonna have to leave the game it was just miserable so <laughs> having that map what about the importance of the doing this planning early as opposed to, uh, hey, that looks like a nice mountain. Let's go climb it. Yeah. And um, if my buddy and I would have started this hike at noon, we probably wouldn't have made it. So we started at six in the morning to give ourselves the most time possible. Um, you can go at a little easier pace. You can take breaks. And that same exact thing happens to retirement, except with retirement, the benefits are actually twofold. You spread out your saving over more years and your initial savings have more years to compound. So there's even more of a benefit to starting early All with right, retirement. All right. We're going to go to Carl from Atwood, Illinois. I see Carl. Welcome to Paul Rudy's. Yeah, I'm not from Atwood, but I, that's uh, where uh, I'm at today. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, um, Aren't you happy that you took your father's advice as a guide to get to where you're at today? Uh, there's that old saying, you, you've heard, daily devotion is better than yearly resolution. I've been to the mountaintop. I fell all the way down to the bottom because I didn't have my ropes in place. Yep. And uh, and I never did that really, but I fell out of a tree once. Well, I understand. Uh, I love that analogy, uh, by the metaphorically. way. Metaphorically. Yeah. But um, I'm now at the bottom retired and i wish i had an auto you've heard that one someday i'll yes. that other thing yes um i suppose if i'd have put a nickel in the bank every day i'd been rich because i've got friends that i'm not jealous of them but they did the right thing they put us set aside a little money and just refused to ever touch that and uh, i would say for the young people well i'm 68 so anybody that's 62 and younger uh just set aside a little bit of money on a regular basis and um, and have somebody to guide you along the way, like the Rudys. 
This isn't Paul Rudy, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's Paul. <laughs> the father? Yes. Oh, I thought it was a son. Well, well he's you here have too. both in the room. Oh, We're both of us are here. Too many Pauls. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I'm listening to you on DWS, and um, but I talked to you once before, and you said a, you had to save a thousand dollars first, and that hasn't happened yet. But I'm enjoying life, and uh, I wish I had a auto because then I would have enjoyed more, and I would have been able to give more away. And I, I and I think, and, uh, and when you're sitting there in your twenties, it's hard to recognize that, isn't it, Carl? Yeah, so you know that was part of the reason I called the people that listening. Tell your kids and grandkids, you know, I you need to set aside a little bit of money so you can have more at the end. Yeah, because compound interest. Yep. And when one day, one night, you go to sleep, and you're in your thirties, and then you wake up, and you're in your sixties, just yeah, like I'm, a blink. I'm so. selling fifty years, celebrating fifty years of class reunion at Central. So uh, well, good for you. I'm here. I had my 40th yeah. last year, Carl, so I'm chasing you. Yeah. Well, Carl. I tell people I feel like I'm 19 and my skin is smooth and my hair is jet black. <laughs> yeah. My voice is still the same. That's the only thing that stays the same. Well, well, we appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you for calling in and sharing your story, and, you know, hopefully that helps some others. So good to okay. talk to you, Carl. Bye-bye. Okay. Guys, I mean, when I go to 401K plans and, you know, someone will say, well, when do you think I should start saving? It's usually one of the younger people, a new hire, and it's in a group of 50 or 100 people. And I say, I'm not going to answer that. And they'll say, well, why won't you answer that? I go, because I want somebody who's been out on this factory floor for the last 30 years to tell you when you should start and how much you should put away. And, boy, the, the old guys and the old, the, you know, the seasoned citizens, they jump right in and they just give put down a lecture that I could have never given when I was your age, when I was in my 20s and 30s in this business. They just probably wouldn't respect it. But when they know the guy, Joe, who's or, or the lady, Mary, who's been out there for 42 years and is still working, uh, maybe because they want to, but still they're going to put the smack down on those young ones. And that really gets to the starting early. Isn't that just the most powerful dollars we ever get to invest is the ones we invest earliest? Yeah, absolutely. And I just think that kind of ties into even starting early on a mountain hike. Starting early actually enables you to, to achieve goals that you might not have. And you might even surprise yourself. So I think a lot of people probably thought that I really set out to get to Mount Charleston on this hike. But my buddy and I actually did it to get to the halfway point and do it as kind of a simulation run to see if we could get to that critical halfway point in the right amount of time to maybe try to do this hike later in the year. But what happened is we left early, we took our time, and we got to the halfway point with pretty fresh legs. And um, though I think once we got about 90% of the way to the top, we were <laughs> we regretted it a little bit uh, and took a little grit, but we got there. And I think that's the same with retirement planning. If you start early, you work on a plan, you, you don't shoot yourself in the foot, basically, you're probably going to exceed the goals that you started with. And anecdotally, that I've seen that pretty commonly. We have people come into the office, the ones who have been diligent savers from the time they were young, and they just can't believe once we build a financial plan for right. them that a lot of times they'll come in saying, well, I want to retire in five years. And then we show them, well, you can retire right now and spend more than you're currently spending. Yeah. And they just can't believe it. But in that, it's real. You guys hear me probably more times than you care. They'll say, well, I, I'd, I'd like to retire maybe in four or five years. And I can kind of skim their financials and their, and their uh, investments and kind of what they've done and the critical mass and, and 
typically I already know the an I already know the answer and I'll say, well, are you working now because you want to or because you think you need to or a little of both? And I say, it's a little of both generally. And that's when we, uh, and sometimes on that front end of a meeting, we can say, well, if that's what you're taking home after taxes and after you put money in 401k plan, and if that runs your world, I'm guessing that it's that plus another 1500 a month and you could do that right now. And I'll, many times they don't go and retire just because I told them they could financially speaking because they're not prepared to emotionally or they enjoy it. But one thing they all tell me, they enjoy going to work a little bit more knowing that when they put the key in that car that day, they did it because they wanted to, not because they had to. And that's that mentality from starting early, mistake proofing it, being prepared, don't try to do it all at once so you get burned out. Incremental is fine, you know, starting out with three or 4% in your 401k. Okay, maybe it's not ideal, but at least you get the match, the full match. And then each year, year after year, you take some of your raise and you increase your, uh, it, your deferral into your 401k contribution by 1% a year. Before you know it, you're putting 10% and then 12 and then 15. And then next thing you know, they're saying, hey, that's all you can put in is the 18,000 or 24,000 if you're 50 years old uh, or older. And uh, so I thought that was a good, uh, it, was a, it was a nice article. I, I think there, is, there are those relationships and those similarities. It, all, it always circles back to it's in the planning. Success is always built in the planning. It, it's dangerous to probably go up a lot of these mountains if you just say, oh, I don't, I don't know what the trail looks like. I really don't know how high that is. It just looks high. You can really get into a lot of trouble real fast. Well, you can get into even more trouble going down. I think that's probably yeah. the last similarity that's worth pointing out is, you know, when you're climbing mountains, it's riskier on the way down because if you slip up, you make a mistake, it's a lot harder to recover from it. You can just keep going because of gravity and whatnot. It's easier to make a misstep. And your legs are you know, toast. When you're, <laughs> when you're working and you have time to save up more money and recover from things, that's one thing. But when you actually are retired – and now you don't have an income, you're not saving, you're actually withdrawing money from your investments. It's really important to get things right and to have that plan to keep you on track because if you get it wrong, it could mean running out of money. What do you think keeps people from going in to see a financial advisor uh, in town and taking that? Whether you're 20s, 30s, 50s, it's never too late. Uh, it's maybe not ideal to wait that long, but what do you suppose keeps at least half the people from having a financial plan and having a financial planner? Is that just... Well, I think money is kind of personal. Uh, money and health in particular you know, are things just people don't like to talk about, even sometimes with a professional. I think people have an easier time talking to a doctor about their illnesses than they do a financial advisor about their finances. So I think there's an emotional factor there, but I also think people are afraid to declare their ignorance of certain topics because everyone has to be good Or maybe with they're money, embarrassed right? that they made some mistakes along the way that welcome to the human race. I haven't seen anybody walk through my office that hasn't. Oh, absolutely. I was talking to my Uber driver yesterday and she was telling me all about her bankruptcy proceedings and I could tell she was kind of sheepish about it, but I had to explain that there is nothing in our financial in our educational system that prepares you to be financially successful like that. So, yeah, it's, it's not their fault, but well, for some reason this, they feel like it is. Yeah, uh, it, it could be. You think it's intimidating to I some think people? So, yeah. The idea that I have to be vulnerable and lay out either what I have or haven't done and maybe what I have done I don't feel great about. I'm gonna, you guys are going to make me feel stupid. And we don't do that. I mean, I, I think, and I don't think it's unique to us. I, I'll say that almost all the advisors I know in this town are 
pretty good people that aren't going to embarrass you. I think you could I think you could allow yourself in my experience to have that vulnerability and take that first step and I think once they get through that first step, I think, you know, we have a low key approach that I think really is inviting, I think. Uh, that's, that's the feedback we get, and, and I guess that's just our nature. Yeah, Ryan. And I think some people will say that. By the time you said something, Ryan. I know. Uh, give me a minute. I'm there today. Uh, some people will say, oh, I, I'm doing just fine for myself. I, you know, I do pretty good. And I think we hear that comment from people, yeah. and that's that's kind of just said in, in, like, in a vacuum. There's no measurement to it. You're not benchmarking yourself necessarily against anything. You're just putting money away, and maybe it's not invested in the right place or aimed at something at, like, at a specific target date or it's anything, be pointed it's, at something. It's just kind yeah. of you know you're you're bobbing like a you know a ship at sea with no direction. So giving you a little bit of direction by meeting with an advisor can point you in the right direction. Hopefully, get you on uh, a right path. Yeah, even if it's not a fit, like most of the time, a good advisor is going to say, you know what, I don't know that I can add enough value in your life. I can see that you have an acute issue here that you just kind of need to be pointed in the right direction. And I would say we do that as often as as not as we say, well. Not everybody wants to hire us or want needs to hire us, and so maybe they don't fit our mold, but they usually walk out with pointed at a much better uh, attack than what they're doing, or maybe we iron out some wrinkles for them, and, and they feel really good about that. Um, we'll pull uh, Dr. Fred in on this one since he's been so patient. But yeah, well, I had, uh, yeah, go I, ahead, Fred. I, I had my own, uh, own analogy that might be helpful. Okay. Uh, I had a friend once who... who uh, ran a marathon in uh, Antarctica. He wanted to do one on every continent. I had, what did you learn? He said, what I learned was no matter how warm you get, don't throw your gloves down. You know, I think that's that complacency and that's that uh, not having that rule book in front of you that says, hey, I got to throw my gloves down. I'm like, wait a minute, that's rule number four. No matter how warm <laughs> yeah. your hands are or how warm it is outside, don't throw your gloves down. It's like my dad saying, I don't care what the forecast is in Chicago for being mm -hmm. hot and humid. I've spent too many times when that lake wind turns and you're 30 or 40 degrees colder. So I think that's good. Paul, you, uh, and you also wrote an article for Investopedia that was, sub, uh, was also picked up by NASDAQ on their website too, called Smart uh, Beta Strategies for Retail Investors. It's kind of this new wave, this, this smart beta. Uh, you're seeing Vanguard get into it. You're seeing a lot of the exchange traded funds, the Black Rocks and the, you know, iShares, or maybe they got purchased, but you know, I'm just these major exchange traded funds, all targeting what's called smart beta. Uh, I've always thought of it as factor investing and I've been doing it since 1990, but, and you guys worked at Dimensional Fund Advisors, both of you, uh, for several years. And that basically, I think they were kind of the pioneers of what I call factor investing, but now people call it smart beta. So I'd like you guys to talk a little about about what is it because people are seeing it. So if you if somebody asks you, well, Paul, what's or, or David or Ryan, what's smart beta to begin with? I would say that smart beta is kind of or factor investing. They're really kind of interchangeable terms. It's kind of a catch-all term for investing in specific groups of stocks with particular characteristics. Usually, that characteristic is that they're going to have a higher expected return than the broad market. Not all the time. You know, sometimes you have low volatility and you have different, you know, they got a whole menu of them out there now. But moral of the story is instead of trying to pick stocks, people are now trying to reap the returns of particular asset classes because those asset classes have been shown to behave a certain way. And, and, and why did this rise to such a prominence suddenly? 
Well, I think it's really caught on because it's been very effective. And, and basically kind of what, what happened, I think it helps us to go through the history. So yeah. when you hear beta, kind of the, the counterpoint to that is alpha. And so historically, active mutual fund managers and, and professional investors said, well, I'm going to basically generate excess performance, which they called alpha, um, by picking stocks or timing the market. Basically one of those two things. And research came out that said basically the vast majority of them were failing miserably. And so people went to using index funds and saying, well, I'm just going to match market returns. The thing is, not a lot of people like the idea of like, oh, I'm just going to own the entire market and just match market returns. They're saying, well, I want higher returns than the market. So smart beta kind of came about. And basically what they did is like research came out that said, okay, well, just because you can't pick stocks or time the market doesn't mean you can't earn higher returns. There are certain groups or subsets of the stock market, groups of stocks or subsets of the market that seem to have higher ex higher returns than others. So like an example would be small companies have higher expected returns than just the broad market or than large companies. So, so they it kind of just snowballed from it there. It kind of started with small cap, didn't it? Uh, when ba Bantz, wasn't that his name? Ralph, yeah, Rolf Bonds, Bonds, yeah. Uh, did a study that said, hey, wow, now that we know the return of the broad asset class, US stock market, uh, now that we've kind of looked underneath it and ranked stocks by the biggest to the smallest, it looks like these small company stocks, you know, at the very bottom, produce much higher returns historically than the largest stocks at the other end. And so that became a factor, right? Is that a, that, and that would be a smart beta. There might be a smart beta fund that just isolate, tries to isolate the small company size premium. Exactly. It's not a free lunch, though, right? I buy micro cap or small cap stocks. Does that mean if the premium return historically might have been one or two or so percent a year more than the largest stocks? Uh, so I sign up, I buy it, I'm going to get that? Well, usually there's some excess risk there or some reason for the premium to be there. And that kind of gets back to, and I don't know if I'm stealing Paul's thunder here. If Go I was ahead and steal to talk it. About nope. this, but, you know, I think one of the issues you can run into when people are performing research is they're pouring through historical data and there's tons and tons of researchers out there and there's the issue of data mining which is basically in layman's terms my explanation is if you have enough people looking at a subset of data they're going to find some strategies that worked in that data set. Isn't that, that what they say to if you torture data long enough it will tell you anything you want it to. Exactly so the trick is you have to basically say, well, how confident are we that this is not a fluke, that it's not just statistical randomness and that it will persist in the future? And so what you do or what a lot of researchers do is they look for things like, well, did it persist over time or was it specific to like a couple decades? Do you want okay. to stop? And yeah, I'm going to take a call. We're going to take a call from Jerry. Oh, call in. Sorry, Jerry, I probably got to you. I probably didn't notice you fast enough. Okay, drop it. Uh, he, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, and he can always call back. The other thing is it per pervasive across markets. So does it show up in the U.S. and also international markets? Um, or does it just show up in a specific country or a specific sector? Um, other things, is it cost effective to capture? There's things that will show up on paper, but when you take into consideration real world trading frictions and costs, you're not able to actually capture them in a cost effective manner. You might spend $2 chasing $1 of premium. So it's there, but it, it costs you too much to do it. Talk about the major ones. Talk about the ones we've uh, incorporated really since 1990 into our clients' 
uh, plans. So let's go for the big ones first. Well, what happened as as people started pouring through investment returns and all the research around that, they found that there were a relative handful of factors that really drove a lot of the performance of of investment portfolios. So the first one was just whether it was invested in stocks versus bonds. That was called the market premium. And beta actually arose in Bill Sharp's equation, uh, the CAPM equation, as a way of describing how much of a security's return was based on beta. Just for being a stock, it got Just a stock for being return. a stock, right. So that explained, I think, somewhere around 60 to 70% of okay. stock returns. But then in the 1990s, Gene Fama and Ken French accounted for two different factors. One, um, that small company stocks have a premium over large company stocks. And then value stocks or less excellent companies, you know, ones with a lower relative price, have a higher expected returns than one with higher, ex than with higher relative prices. I'm sorry, I'm turned around okay. here. And ultimately, those became your new betas, right? So now you went from one beta to three betas. You had yeah, three market, factors. you had size, and then you had value. And that actually explained 96% of stock returns. So that gave us two new factors. But it's important to remember, a lot of time passed in right. between, you know, decades. Uh, and then recently, we've really just seen an explosion into five and six factor models that are now accounting for momentum or trend. Basically, if a stock's going up, it tends to continue going up. They account for that. They also account for companies that have higher profitability or higher quality. So now you're getting into all these different factors, and some of them are newer than others, right? So size, value, the market premium, those have been around for decades. They've been pretty well vetted. They've been implemented in investment portfolios. But you also have newer ones that the research isn't out there. They haven't been tested. And the, the uh, I guess, it's still a little bit of guesswork okay. as to whether or not they're going to uh, work Fred, out. Fred, in the final couple minutes, uh, are you seeing this? Uh, is it even being talked about at the pension board levels type of things that you're involved in? Yeah, it's talked about a great deal. And uh, I pretty much uh, agree with what you said, Paul, that it's not a free lunch. It's a way of, of uh, taking slightly more risk and, and getting a higher expected return, but it's not a, not a free lunch. So often... It's not, it's not that it's not a good idea, but often it's uh, sold as a uh, riskless way of increasing your return, which really isn't necessarily true. So it's kind of a mini uh, uh, timid way of, uh, of participating in active investment, but you're doing it in a very uh, measured way with a lot of constraints. So again, it's a very reasonable kind of strategy, but it's not a, uh, a magic strategy. And I, bet, uh, and I always ask the question, uh, always ask the question, well, could you uh, achieve the same thing by moving along the, uh, the frontier by just taking on more stock and, and uh, less of the fixed income and, and get, get a higher return for somewhat uh, higher risk there as well? So, again, it's a good idea potentially, but it's not uh, – doesn't dominate uh, the old strategy All necessarily. Right. Okay, thanks, Fred. Yeah, that was Dr. Fred Gertz calling in for the show. I've been here with David Rudy, Paul Rudy, and Ryan Repko. Thanks, guys. Uh, I thought it was a nice show today. I thought it was nice and Join uh, us for casual. the second and fourth. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.